You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. With me today is T. Geronimo Johnson, author of Hold It Till It Hurts a finalist of the 2013 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction and author of Welcome to Braggsville, a novel from William Morrow Publishers, on sale February 17, 2015. Geronimo, thank you so very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Welcome to Braggsville is the story of Darren Davenport, who lives in Braggsville, which is a very small Georgia town, and he goes away to college at UC Berkeley, he struggles to fit in, but things improve when he makes friends with Lewis and Candace and Charlie, and then things take another turn when they decide to go back to Braggsville to stage a, quote, performative intervention at the annual Civil War reenactment. And Ron Rash says about this book that, quote, every racial assumption is both acknowledged and challenged in ways at times hilarious and other times poignant. Now, I I read a lot of books, and I very often enjoy and admire them, and I certainly enjoyed and admired Welcome to Braggsville, but it also got me so excited. I, 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 got, I got agitated in a, in a really positive way, and so I'm, I'm very happy to talk to you. Great, great. That was, that was my hope. Okay, good. So that was that was accomplished. Now you said I've read that you said the theme of your first novel was to ask the question, how do we learn to care about each other? What would you say the theme of Welcome to Braggsville is? It's it's actually um, very very similar, and um, I think of it more so as how do we learn to care about people who are not like ourselves um, specifically. And so, of, of course, in the first novel, um, that those divides were a bit more stark, um, given the uh, subject matter. But here, that same question was at the back of my mind, um, especially given, um, well, I, I would say rather as evidenced by the cast of characters that I, you know, I put together. We have someone who's Asian, someone who's African American, someone who's Caucasian. We're moving back and forth across the country through um, different kind of uh, cultural time zones. And um, I was trying to explore that same question, but just in a slightly different way. Yeah. And I've also I've also read that you said that every lasting novel is a love story, which I think, if I remember correctly, you were quoting another author. Which said uh, yes, that. I was, I was uh, quoting T.M. McNally, who, who right, teaches okay. at ASU, yes. Thank you. And so... Anyway, I think that as much as this this novel is about race and racial assumptions, I, I do think it's it's kind of a love story about a young man's younger self and and his younger, more innocent perceptions. Because part of what makes this story so poignant is sort of watching your protagonist grow up and sort of have to shed these things that were sort of neat. And he could put in little boxes and realize that things were much, you know, much more complicated than they first appeared. Is this is this based on personal experience, or, or am I am I correct in that and sort of feeling that way? Or 
Well, you know, I, it is it is based on personal experience, but I don't think on an experience that is mine alone. I think that we all go through that period where we have to question the received wisdom, um, and it happens a lot uh, when we're in undergrad. That's often the first time we're away from home for any length of time in an entirely new environment. And, um, you know, especially if you're in the uh, humanities or the liberal arts, one of the... Um, you know, one of the goals of many of the courses that you take those first one or two years where you're learning about uh, more about history and the human condition, one of those goals is to get you to question everything right. um, more than you may have ever done so before. And I think everyone sort of knows that feeling of, you know, going away to school and going home and then not quite knowing, um, you know, how to bridge these two these two worlds. Right. And, and some of... Some of my favorite scenes that are set in Berkeley are when Darren goes and speaks to an advisor and, and basically, you know, sort of admits how how hard it has been to come from the small town where he was such a smart kid and a big fish in a small pond and now go out to Berkeley and, and feel worried that, you know, he, he doesn't belong there at all, which which I thought was so I thought that you captured that so extremely well, like you said, that so many of us went through where we weren't certain. Oh my God, can we, you know, can we cut it at, at this in this new um, environment? Uh, yeah, and actually, I think a lot of people go through that, starting with uh, the transition from elementary school to middle school, if they're in a school system where they're in two different buildings. Right. right. Um, just when you feel like you're on 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 top of the world, you you start all over again at the at the bottom of the ladder. Right. Now, where did you grow up, and how did you become a writer? Well, um, I grew up uh, in Columbia, Maryland, and in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, I think that it's at least part of the reason that I write about some of the things I write about is because of the just the vast cultural and uh, economic differences between these two worlds that were so important to me at uh at very significant developmental periods of my life. And um, it wasn't really until I was an adult that I, I looked back and, and realized that um, if I had lived in only one or the other, I would have a much more narrow view of right. what it means to, to live in America today, especially as a person of, of color. And, um, you know, I'll just say sort of in, you know, in, in brief that, um, like, the educational systems were, were quite different. Um, right. You know, um, New Orleans, is it's a city, you know, it's in an urban school. Um, and uh, Columbia is very, very suburban. The schools were open space. We didn't even have class doors yeah. on, on most of the academic areas. We were just grouped in pods. I've, I've also read that you said that as a black man, you live in a different world and that social spaces bend differently around you. Do you feel like your fiction sort of furthers that conversation and furthers the need to examine that and talk about that? You know, I I hope I hope that it does. I, I hope that it does because that's definitely uh, one of the experiences that I'm trying to convey through the work. Um, and, in, and in this novel, I'm, I'm also trying to do that a bit with uh, gender and sexual orientation mm -hmm. as well. But um, for me, um, I joke sometimes that I don't have, uh, you know, I don't have too many fins, so I might not be able to move s smoothly through space. And I attribute a lot of that though, to my my size as well. I'm I'm, I'm well over six feet, and so uh, people are conscious of me when I when I yeah. enter their when I enter their space, and and 
um, it's it's not always with um, admiration that, right. that, they, that they gaze. Actually, yeah. Now, I, what was another quote that stood with me um, was that I read from you was the most dangerous thing in this world is a young black boy in a man's body. I thought that that was so that was so well put. You know, when they sort of they shoot up. And yet they're still only 15, 16 years old. But when they're walking down the street, they might be received as something completely different and in a completely different way, right? Right, right. You know, and we saw that. Um, well, we've seen that a lot, unfortunately, in the last in the last few years. But we saw that with, um, I think it's Tamir Rice in uh, in Ohio, and we yeah. saw that also with Michael Brown. Um, you know, no matter what people think of the overall. Uh, Situation surrounding that he he was a kid he's still a kid he's, right, right. He's barely getting out of high school he's, he yeah. was a child now tell us what you're saying about tragedy in this book <laughs> because right. you really you spend some time sort of going to the the root of the word and comparing it to tragedy you know, it was very interesting to me so I know that there's something behind it so yeah well you know the the book is um, on. On, on the surface level, it's it's sort of taking on this uh, deployment of the term that I think of as a vernacular tragedy, and you know this just means that we use it anytime something bad happens. So a plane crashes, and we call that tragedy. Um, a train goes off the rails. I think that's the example in the book, and we call that tragedy. But in the um, in the traditional sense, it means for one to be faced with two claims of equal importance and to be really torn between the two. And so this this usage that has um, entered popular parlance is one that it sort of it robs us of the opportunity to consider the the deeper complexity of a lot of the decisions that we have mm-hmm. to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're really you're really trying to prompt us to think more deeply about these things. And I, I, I believe that you were successful. Tell me, how would you describe your use of language? Personally? Yeah, I mean, because um. I started to write the question like, oh, in this book, you da, 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 and I thought it's going to be impossible for me to describe it because it's one of the mo- that's one of the things that I enjoyed the most about it and that I think got me the most excited because it was so different and distinct. And it just seemed, this book seemed to vibrate for me that I, in a way that, few others do, and I think it was because of the way you use language. So how would you describe the way you use language? Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad that you clarified that because at, at first I want, I thought you meant how I use it in a day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis, no, and I thought, you know, much more sloppily than, than I'd like to admit. But um, in, in terms of, of writing the book, I think that, um, or I know rather that I was often trying to get closer to the shape of, of thought, um, in that, uh, you know, when we're turning things over in our head, sometimes we we know where an idea is going to end up, but often we may be surprised at where we end up when we really give things deep consideration. And so um, I was trying to do that at the, at the sentence level at times, you know, write sentences that the reader can't quite see around the corner of. Yes. Um, you know, but because also- you would start out in one, you would start out almost in one style, shift to another, and then another and then by the time you concluded the sentence, like you said, it was it was an ending to that thought that could have been entirely unexpected. Yeah, you know, and and I feel like that's um, you know for me it's sort of representative of the, the like the actual experience of thinking something through, mm-hmm. um, and then um, 
you know, also what happens a lot is I I will try to stick in things that uh, one of the characters have heard. Most most likely this this most often rather this happens with uh, Darren. So he's he's trying to think about things in his own terms, but then he finds himself um, quoting people. Yeah. And so. And, and not really consciously, but um, I'm just sort of doing that to show how few of his ideas are actually his own, which I believe is true for for all of us, that we're a collection. Right. We're just sort of a river of competing voices. Right. Now, who who are your first readers as you're writing? Well, um, you know, that... That varies, of course. When when I was in grad school, it would be the people in my my workshops here yeah. at, at Iowa and at Stanford, and those were all invaluable invaluable reads. And uh, now it tends to be uh, my partner Elizabeth and uh, my mother. I always let my mother take a look at things as well. And. I, I've heard that more than once. It's very interesting to me. It makes me happy, actually, um, as a mother. And now where does your mother live now? Uh, she's in Atlanta, Georgia. And all of those all of those southern expressions that I couldn't tell if all of them were real or if <laughs> you made up some of them because there were so many and they were so fantastic. Um, is that... A, is that something you've gotten from your family? Is that something that you've just collected uh, along the way? I mean, how how did you manage to to find and use so many of them? Well, I you know I've been in, uh, fortunate to uh, work in, in many different industries, and and while I was living in Atlanta and in New Orleans, I did everything from uh, phone sales to uh, selling ladies' shoes to uh, working in construction and finance, and so um, different sayings which just sort of um, Lodge themselves in my in my brain if they felt like poetic or particularly apt, and um, then I'd also try to make up as many as I could, just because I feel like that gives the book a certain life. Um, it's like you have to be really careful when you're using slang because you don't want to date the story too much, even uh, though it's yeah. very contemporary. But I I thought of as as, as I think of slang, which um, you know. I, I need to make up most of what appears in the book so that it will be very much its own world. Yes, and that, you accomplished that. Those sayings were just fantastic. All right, now I want to I want to speak to you as a reader now. Okay. What was the last book that you had a conversation about, and and what was that conversation about? Okay, um, this is a oh goodness. The last book that I was talking about was Zone by Matthias Ennard, oh. and um, it's it's built as one long sentence uh, oh. of about um, maybe 515 pages, and the the conversation was solely about like the notion of whether or not that was actually a sentence or not, and what is a sentence. Um, because and I was talking to other writers. <laughs> other writers. I was talking to other okay. writers. <laughs> I think that kind of went without saying, but I just wanted to check. Um, and which side were you on? Was it a sentence or not? I. Um, it's you know the the sentences. It's that's such a. Um, I, I want to say yes, if, you know, aesthetically, and as a writer, I'd say it's a sentence. 
um, my Mrs. Shertock, my uh, ninth grade English teacher, would probably say no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll have to we'll have to let the listeners decide for themselves. Yes. All right, now if you had to recommend a book to a thirteen-year-old boy, what would it be? Wow, you know, I might recommend of all things, um, goodness, uh, this book by Calvino. I'm trying to. Oh, really? Yeah. You're going to get a 13 year old? I might might recommend Invisible Cities. All right. because no one else well first of all in any <laughs> no time someone is the thing no one else will that's for yeah, sure as soon as someone says well what would you recommend i i'm i'm thinking well i'm not going to necessarily recommend the same thing everyone else will because they're going to hear that anyway but i might be um tempted to recommend invisible cities because it's so fantastical mm-hmm. and it really sparks your imagination and i think that that is an age where it's critical to continue to to spark and fire the imagination because this is also when people are telling you, "All right, you're going to be a man. You must be more mature. You know, you must, you know, be more right. responsible, and et cetera, et cetera." Right. You're so conscious of these of these sort of inflection points in in a life. You know, it's, it's very interesting. All right. Now, if you knew that you were going to be banished to a desert island and you could take three books, what would they be? You know, um, one would probably be the Bible, and one would be the uh, Bhagavad Gita. Oh. <laughs> you know, because I'm I'm banished. I'm going to have nothing to do but think, and I'm going to need the kind of solace that you can find in those two texts. And um, you know, the third the third book, you know. It might be, you know what, I'm going to say it would be anything by Karen Russell because the diction is just so fantastic. And I would have time to suss out what all the words mean because I'm banished. Yeah. Yeah. There you are. You can relax and enjoy it. Yeah. All right, well, that was really all I I wanted to say to you today. Again, I'm so excited by this book. I wish you... Phenomenal success, and I hope I get to meet you the next time you're in New York. Thank you so very much, and congratulations on a great book. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.